Chapter twenty nine B of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter twenty nine B. Particulars of the crime. The dying president. A nation's grief. Funeral obsequies. The return to Illinois. At rest in Oak Ridge Cemetery. Major Rathbone, who occupied a seat in the President's box, testifies that he was sitting with his back toward the door when he heard the discharge of a pistol behind him, and looking around saw through the smoke a man between the door and the President. Major Rathbone instantly sprang toward him and seized him. The man wrested himself from his grasp and made a violent thrust at the Major's breast with a large knife. The Major parried the blow by striking it up and received a wound in his left arm. The man rushed to the front of the box, and the Major endeavored to seize him again, but only caught his clothes as he was leaping over the railing of the box. Major Rathbone then turned to the President. His position was not changed. His head was slightly bent forward, and his eyes were closed. As soon as the surgeons who had been summoned completed their hasty examination, the unconscious form of the President was borne from the theatre to a house across the street, and laid upon his deathbed. Around him were gathered Surgeon General Barnes, Vice President Johnson, Senator Sumner, Secretaries Stanton and Wells, Generals Halleck and Meggs, Attorney General Speed, Postmaster General Dennison, Mr. McCullough, Speaker Colfax, and other intimate friends who had been hastily summoned. Mrs. Lincoln sat in an adjoining room, prostrate and overwhelmed, with her son Robert. The examination of the surgeons had left no room for hope. The watchers remained through the night by the bedside of the stricken man, who showed no signs of consciousness, and a little after seven o'clock in the morning, Saturday the 15th of April, he breathed his last. A vivid account of the deathbed scene, together with particulars of the attacks upon Secretary Seward and his son Frederick a half-hour later than the attack upon the President, is furnished in the contemporaneous record of Secretary Wells, a singularly cool observer and clear narrator. "'I had retired to bed about half-past ten, on the evening of the 14th of April,' writes Mr. Wells, and was just getting asleep when Mrs. Wells, my wife, said someone was at our door. I arose at once and raised a window, when my messenger, James Smith, called to me that Mr. Lincoln, the President, had been shot, and said Secretary Seward and his son Assistant Secretary Frederick Seward were assassinated. I immediately dressed myself, and, against the earnest remonstrance and appeals of my wife, went directly to Mr. Seward's, whose residence was on the east side of the square, mine being on the north. Entering the house I found the lower hall and office full of persons, and among them most of the foreign legations, all anxiously inquiring what truth there was in the horrible rumours afloat. At the head of the first stairs I met the elder Mrs. Seward, who was scarcely able to speak, but desired me to proceed up to Mr. Seward's room. As I entered I met Miss Fanny Seward, with whom I exchanged a single word, and proceeded to the foot of the bed. Dr. Verdi, and, I think, two others, were there. The bed was saturated with blood. The secretary was lying on his back, the upper part of his head covered by a cloth, which extended down over his eyes. His mouth was open, the lower jaw dropping down. I exchanged a few whispered words with Dr. Verdi. 
Secretary Stanton, who came after but almost simultaneously with me, made inquiries in a louder tone till admonished by a word from one of the physicians. We almost immediately withdrew and went into the adjoining front room, where lay Frederick Seward. His eyes were open, but he did not move them, nor a limb, nor did he speak. Dr. White, who was in attendance, told me he was unconscious and more dangerously injured than his father. As we descended the stairs, I asked Stanton what he had heard in regard to the President that was reliable. He said the President was shot at Ford's Theatre, that he had seen a man who was present and witnessed the occurrence. I said I would go immediately to the White House. Stanton told me the President was not there, but was at the theatre. Then, said I, let us go immediately there. The President had been carried across the street from the theatre to the house of a Mr. Peterson. We entered by ascending a flight of steps above the basement, and passing through a long hall to the rear, where the President lay extended on a bed, breathing heavily. Several surgeons were present, at least six, I should think more. Among them I was glad to observe Dr. Hall, who, however, soon left. I inquired of Dr. H. as I entered the true condition of the President. He replied the President was dead to all intents, although he might live three hours or perhaps longer. The giant sufferer lay extended diagonally across the bed, which was not long enough for him. He had been stripped of his clothes. His large arms, which were occasionally exposed, were of a size which one would scarce have expected from his spare appearance. His slow, full respiration lifted the clothes with each breath that he took. His features were calm and striking. I had never seen them appear to better advantage than for the first hour, perhaps, that I was there. After that his right eye began to swell, and that part of his face became discoloured. Senator Sumner was there, I think, when I entered. If not, he came in soon after, as did Speaker Colfax, Mr. Secretary McCullough, and the other members of the Cabinet, with the exception of Mr. Seward. A double guard was stationed at the door and on the sidewalk to repress the crowd, which was, of course, highly excited and anxious. The room was small and overcrowded. The surgeons and members of the Cabinet were as many as should have been in the room, but there were many more, and the hall and the other rooms in the front or main house were full. One of these rooms was occupied by Mrs. Lincoln and her attendants, with Miss Harris. Mrs. Dixon and Mrs. Kinney came to her about twelve o'clock. About once an hour Mrs. Lincoln would repair to the bedside of her dying husband, and with lamentations and tears remain until overcome by emotion. A door which opened upon a porch or gallery, and also the windows, were kept open for fresh air. The night was dark, cloudy, and damp, and about six it began to rain. I remained in the room until then without sitting or leaving it, when, there being a vacant chair which someone left at the foot of the bed, I occupied it for nearly two hours, listening to the heavy groans, and witnessing the wasting life of the good and great man who was expiring before me. A little before seven in the morning I re-entered the room, where the dying President was rapidly drawing near the closing moments. His wife soon after made her last visit to him. The death struggle had begun. Robert, his son, stood with several others at the head of the bed. The respiration of the President became suspended at intervals, and at last entirely ceased at twenty-two minutes past seven o'clock. The news of the President's assassination flashed rapidly over the country, everywhere causing the greatest consternation and grief. The revulsion from the joy which had filled all loyal hearts at the prospects of peace was sudden and profound. All business ceased. 
and gave way to mourning and lamentation. The flags, so lately unfurled in exultation, were now dropped at half-mast, and emblems of sorrow were hung from every door and window. Men walked with a dejected air. They gathered together in groups in the street, and spoke of the murder of the President as of a personal calamity. The nation's heart was smitten sorely, and signs of woe were in every face and movement. A scene which transpired in Philadelphia the morning after the murder reflects the picture presented in every city and town in the United States. We had taken our seats, says the delineator, in the early car to ride downtown, men and boys going to work. The morning papers had come up from town, as usual, and the men unrolled them to read as the car started. The eye fell on the black border and ominous column lines. Before we could speak, a good Quaker at the head of the car broke out in horror. "'My God! What's this? Lincoln is assassinated!' The driver stopped the car and came in to hear the awful tidings. There stood the car, mid-street, as the heavy news was read in the gray dawn of that ill-fated day. Men bowed their faces in their hands, and on the straw-covered floor hot tears fell fast. Silently the driver took the bells from his horses, and we started like a hearse cityward. What a changed city since the day before! Then all was joy over the end of the war. Now we were plunged in a deeper gulf of woe. The sun rose on a city smitten and weeping. All traffic stood still. The icy hand of death lay flat on the heart of commerce, and it gave not a throb. Men stood by their open stores, saying, with hands on each other's shoulders, Our President is dead. Over and over, in a dazed way, they said the fateful syllables, as if the bullet that tore through the weary brain at Washington had palsied the nation. The mute newsboy on the corner said never a word as he handed to the speechless buyers the damp sheets from the press. Only he brushed, with unwashed hand, the tears from his dirty cheeks. Groups stood listening on the pavement with faces to the earth, while one in choking voice read the telegrams. Then with a look they departed in unworded woe, each cursing bitterly in his breast the deep damnation of his taking off. Mill operatives, clerks, workers, school-children, all came home, the faltering voice of the teacher telling the wondering children to go home, there will be no school to-day. The housewife looked up amazed to see husband and children coming home so soon. The father's face frightened her, and she cried, What is wrong, husband? He could not speak the news. But the wee girl with the school-books said, "'Mama, they've killed the President!' Ere noon every house wore crape. It was as if there lay a dead son in every home. For hours a sad group hung around the bulletins, hoping against hope, then, when the last hope died, turned suddenly homeward, saying, "'When all was won, and all was done, then to strike him down.' The flags in the harbor fell to half-mast. The streets were rivers of inky streamers, from doorknobs floated crape, and even the unbelled car-horses seemed to draw the black-robed cars more quietly than before. On Saturday the remains were borne to the White House, where they were embalmed and placed on a grand catafalque in the East Room. Little Tad was overcome with grief. All day Saturday he was inconsolable, but on Sunday morning the sun rose bright and beautiful and into his childish heart came the thought that all was well with his father. He said to a gentleman who called upon Mrs. Lincoln, "'Do you think, sir, that my father has gone to heaven?' "'I have not a doubt of it,' 
was the reply. Then, said the little fellow in broken voice, I am glad he has gone there, for he was never happy after he came here. This was not a good place for him. Tuesday the White House was thrown open to admit friends who desired to look upon the still form as it lay in death. Wednesday, the 19th, the funeral services took place. Mrs. Lincoln was too ill to be present, but her two sons sat near the coffin in the East Room. Next in order were ranged Andrew Johnson, now President, and the members of the Cabinet, and after him the foreign representatives, the chief men of the nation, and a large body of mourning citizens. The services were conducted jointly by the Rev. Dr. Hall, Bishop Simpson, Dr. Gray, and the Rev. Dr. Gurley, the latter delivering the discourse. At two o'clock the funeral cortege started for the capital, where the remains were to lie in state until the following morning. The procession was long and imposing. There were no truer mourners, says Secretary Wells, than the poor colored people who crowded the streets, joined the procession, and exhibited their woe, bewailing the loss of him whom they regarded as a benefactor and father. Women as well as men, with their little children, thronged the streets, sorrow and trouble and distress depicted on their countenances and in their bearing. The vacant holiday expression had given way to real grief. The body was borne into the rotunda, amidst funeral dirges and military salutes, and the religious exercises of the occasion were concluded. A guard was stationed near the coffin, and the public were again admitted to take their farewell of the dead. While these obsequies were being performed at Washington, similar ceremonies were observed in every part of the country. It had been decided to convey the remains of Lincoln to the home which he left four years before with such solemn and affectionate words of parting. The funeral train left Washington on the 21st. Its passage through the principal eastern states and cities of the Union was a most mournful and impressive spectacle. The heavily craped train, its sombre engine swathed in black, moved through the land like an eclipse. At every point vast crowds assembled to gain a tearful glimpse as it sped past. Over the breast of the spring, the land, amid cities, amid lanes through old woods, where lately the violets peeped from the ground, spotting the gray debris, amid the grass in the fields each side of the lanes, passing the endless grass, passing the yellow-speared wheat, every grain from its shroud in the dark brown fields uprisen, passing the apple-tree blows of white and pink in the orchards, carrying a corpse to where it shall rest in the grave, night and day journeys a coffin. Coffin that passes through lanes and streets, through day and night, with the great cloud darkening the land, with the pomp of the in-looped flags, with the cities draped in black, with the show of the states themselves as of crape-veiled women standing, with processions long and winding in the flambeaux of the night, with the countless torches lit, with the silent sea of faces and the unbared heads. With the waiting depot, the arriving coffin, and the sombre faces, with dirges through the night, with the thousand voices rising strong and solemn, with all the mournful voices of the dirges poured round the coffin, the dim-lit churches, and the shuddering organs, with the tolling, tolling bells' perpetual clang. At the principal cities delays were made to enable the people to pay their tribute of respect to the remains of their beloved President. Through Baltimore, Harrisburg, Philadelphia, the train passed to New York City 
where a magnificent funeral was held, thence along the shore of the Hudson River to Albany, thence westward through the principal cities of New York, Ohio, and northern Indiana, the cortege wended its solemn way, reaching on the first of May the city of Chicago. Here very extensive preparations for funeral obsequies had been made by the thousands who had known him in his life, and other thousands who had learned to love him and now mourned his death. On the third of May the funeral train reached Springfield, where old friends and neighbors tenderly received the dust of their beloved dead. Funeral services were held, and for twenty-four hours the catafalque remained in the hall of the house, where thousands of tear-dimmed eyes gazed for the last time upon the familiar face. Then, on the morning of the fourth of May, a sorrowing procession escorted the remains to the beautiful grounds of Oak Ridge Cemetery, to rest at last from the care and tumult of a troubled life. To this hallowed spot have come the gray-haired soldiers of that stormy war, reverently to salute their great commander's tomb. Here shall long be paid the loving homage of the dusky race that he redeemed, and pilgrims from every land, who value human worth and human liberty, bring here their tributes of respect. And here, while the government that he saved endures, shall throng his patriot countrymen, not idly to lament his loss, but to resolve that from this honoured dead they take increased devotion to that cause for which he gave the last full measure of devotion, that the dead shall not have died in vain, that the nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. End of chapter 29b And end of The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln